what's up folks happy friday welcome to the good trouble podcast where we have curated conversations for racial and economic justice here in the commonwealth of massachusetts my name is reginald williams i'm one of your co-hosts glad to be here with my esteemed co-host mr gregory ball greg how you feeling i'm feeling wonderful i'm feeling wonderful i'm, I'm you know we're in the home stretch of a, a lot of a serious work over at king boston and we've been getting some things done so it's, it's been been a lot of work but it's been great work and i'm feeling good and we just had our uh, groundbreaking for uh for the memorial and it was a wonderful ceremony we had a lot of great people there and our guest is one of those great people we'll get to her in one second before we go any deeper we have to shout out our producer dj teddy ted so i'm gonna make sure we give him his props and say hello to him as we get into this thing of ours and our we love and appreciate you Yes, we do. We absolutely love and appreciate you, my friend. And our guest today is someone who we have the utmost, you said esteemed earlier when you described me, but I, I, I you know, I'm okay. But our guest today is truly the embodiment of that word esteemed. She is a, a culture creator. She is a culture mover. Uh, Multi-hyphenate. Yeah, multi-hyphenate. She's a, a mother, which is probably her most important job. That's right. Um, and is a person who who genuinely is giving of herself um, to the city in a beautiful way. And I think that that is the the piece that makes everybody kind of fall in love with her when they see her. Now, and she's also one of my favorite people on the planet to tease. Absolutely, I enjoy it. <laughs> I, my enjoyment of teasing this woman of no and it's like you know you have your, your cousin that you always just mess with and they know they can't really do nothing with you but this is this is yeah this is who this person is doing we are getting the opportunity to talk to a a woman who is a multiple jobs and she's gonna be she's gonna talk to us about both of those jobs or, or at least two of those jobs rather <laughs> um uh our guest today is Catherine morris who is the leader of BAMS Fest, Boston Arts and Music Soul Festival. And she's in addition to that, she is one of the, no, she is not one of the, she is the jefe. (laughs) Chief. You know you're wrong, Greg. Why am I wrong? But no, listen, I'm joking around. (laughs) This is one of my favorite folks. And it's like I said, I love teasing her. Uh, But no, Catherine is, 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 uh, overseeing the arts in at one of the most esteemed uh, philanthropic organizations in the city, the Boston Foundation. And she is the one who's leading the charge in, in uh, diversifying and making sure that the arts in the area are, is representative of all the communities. And she's doing some incredible work. Please welcome Catherine T. And as T says, so terrific, Morris. <laughs> you better be my hype person. <laughs> <laughs> gotta have Greg in your pocket on a Friday, okay? Oh, for, <laughs> for real. I'm about to record that again. I was like, okay, you said Catherine Mars. Where's the tea? Wait, wait, it's coming. I'm sure it is. Well, you knew you knew the tea was coming because, like I said, the tea stands for terrific. <laughs> you know? I'll tell my mama that. Uh, <laughs> Please do. And you, you know, and that's the other thing. Her mom is one of my other favorite people. Oh, here we go. Okay. Shout out to Miss Betsy Morris. Yes. 
Gallery. Well, Catherine, we're so excited to chat with you um, as a longstanding friend, community member. It's really great to have you on. And we're excited to get to learn a little bit more about your journey, your background, BAMS Fest, the work that you're doing in the arts and culture sector at TBF and more. So let's just dive right into it. Can you give us a little bit about a little bit of the background, the creation story of Catherine T. Morris. Oh my tell goodness. Us, tell us about little Catherine when she oh, grew up in the shack in Mississippi. Cat was not little. Cat uh, <laughs> was not little, shame on you, Greg. Um, <clears throat> well, um, Boston native, uh, born in Jamaica Plain, raised in Roxbury, all my family's here. I am the youngest of five children, but the tallest of five children, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> So for, you know, for those listening, I am a beautiful six foot six. That's excluding my Afro. Um, never played a day of basketball. And that Afro was Afro put choice. you about six, eight, six, nine. Stop it. Um, so <laughs> um, I would say what, what propelled me to, to get to where I am today has probably been being a Mecca student, actually. Um, I was in the MECO system 11 of 12 years, and just the routine of getting up at five o'clock in the morning to be at school by eight and not return back to my neighborhood until 6 p.m. Um, and having to make that decision in second grade that I was going to commit to this work, essentially, um, really prepared me for basically dealing with complicated people, dealing with racism, dealing with bigotry, because I was already dealing with that coming into the MECO program. And so throughout my 11 years, um, I was very fortunate to have some adults in my life who believed in my talents, my curiosity. And rather than them saying, I'm not going to teach you anything, they did. Literally, they did. And so I can remember standing alongside my eighth grade uh, teacher, Miss Nathanson, who helped me to understand eighth grade talent shows. And then by the time I got to high school, um, despite being bullied and picked on, I used arts and culture as, as my saving grace, essentially. I started a student-led social justice movement called Universal Rhythm, which was basically for 98 Black Mecco kids to use the arts uh, as a way to convey to the white peers what they were experiencing. And we literally would do talent shows like once a quarter when it was a quarter system. And um, we had this, this theater called Roger Theater in our high schools. It was a hundred seat black box theater and all 1200 students were trying to fit into this theater um on a Wednesday uh afternoon school block and it was because the talent shows themselves were a reflection of what they of what black and brown uh, Mecca students were feeling and I did that for three years on top of um learning how to build a radio station from scratch understanding um how to craft a story how this is working that radio station in high school taught me how to write my first set of sponsorships, taught me how to publicly speak, how to advocate for folks. And literally by the time I graduated, I wanted to go to a historically black college. And literally after that, I got my identity back in a year and a half and transferred to Temple University 
where festivals came into my life. And I already knew at that point, that's what I wanted to do and coming back home. And when I came back home, I decided um, while I took a job at MIT in student activities, <laughs> um, that I was going to go to graduate school and start a business, whatever that format was gonna be. And Vance Fest was born, a nonprofit. And how it started is not how it, how it is. Uh, we did more than the assignment, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> um, I can recall bringing four artists, oh, excuse me, I can recall someone bringing four artists to me while I worked the graveyard shift at MIT, um, like six to two, 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. That was the kind of shifts I used to work. And I sat down, I told them my, my vision and they believed me. And they said, we will be your first four artists. And those four artists now turn, has turned into 450 artists that we work with now. Wow. Yeah. So that explains, why every time I, that's what, <laughs> that explains why every time you see Catherine, she looks like she's a little bit tired because she, she's been working <laughs> hard for a very long time. This is like 15, 20 years, man. This is just... I love events. I love programs. I love what, what ideas can do for community. Um, I believe the arts and culture is a lifeblood and a necessity. It's not for entertainment. And um, I, will, I will advocate for arts and culture basically to the coffin <laughs> because I believe in it. It saved my life. And I feel like other people should have just as much urgency for arts and culture as every other basic need. Um, in life. So can you tell us a little bit more about what the current context of the urgency of the arts and culture sector looks like in your work at BAMS Fest, you know, given the pandemic, yeah. how things have shifted, what's, what's going on, what's new? Uh, I think the first thing is self-care. That's, that's the first thing out of the pandemic. Um, artists, throughout the pandemic were leaned on so hard, particularly black and brown artists were leaned on so hard to be available for everybody else. And they became so tired that, you know, some had to leave, meaning move out of state, you know, um, change jobs, careers, because they were just stressed and stretched. Um, so I, I recognize that self-care and grace and also taking up space became these amazing scenes that emerged out of the ashes of the pandemic, still in a pandemic, but um, it became very clear that when we were talking to artists that um, they were seeking beyond, you know, gigs and, and jobs, the opportunity just to have peace of mind because it's hard to create every day. You know, that, that's a hard job. Um, and it's a risky job because you hope people like what you create and buy it and so you can be sustainable. And because arts and culture is, is so subjective, um, people can place any kind of value on art. There's, I'm sure there's stuff that each of you question why things are on walls or in places and are $10 million. Well, it's, it's all about the value someone places on that art. Um, but those, you know, those themes emerged. And the other thing that came out of it was housing, um, equitable wage. Um, you know, what, 
what prices were in 2019 are not the prices in 2022. Inflation is real, folks are being displaced. And just the, just the fact of identity that has been lost throughout the pandemic is a reoccurring theme. Um, the artist community, particularly the black and brown artist community is looking to actually find each other within themselves. And that's been hard because Zoom doesn't do it. <laughs> um, you know, people of color, we, are, we, we connect by touching, seeing, experiencing, being in the room, um, even if there's very few words exchanged. So if you can imagine what happens with artists of color, it's like 10 times worse. <clears throat> so for us as an organization, I mean, we had to take a backseat about even our own capacity and our own self-care because we've been running since the organization started. Ultimately, we were doing eight to 12 shows a year and recognize that we actually had to pause ourselves. So for me, I, I let our staff take the whole year off in 2020. And we did virtual programming in 2021. And we just start to reassess and ask questions of artists and even our partners about what is the future of arts and culture for Boston? What does that look like throughout a pandemic? knowing that offerings are now hybrid, that there may be fewer people coming to events because they're scared. Um, you know, what skills can be learned or attained throughout the pandemic and, and what is it gonna take to bring the creative community back together? And I think what has been beautiful with our rapport with artists is that they're very, they're very open about, well, Sometimes I just need to talk to somebody or um, I need to be connected to a food bank, just basic resources. And we, we would make those connections for people just so they can get through, the, through last year, even into this year. And even through the pandemic, we still did a virtual version of our programming to still put food and, 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 and money in people's hands so they can continue to live. Um, as a producer, as a curator, as a presenter, I'm codependent on the talent that's available. So there's a dual responsibility, at least in my opinion, that if you wanna keep talent around, you know, you have to connect with them one-on-one -on -one, and that's what I do. That, that's the beautiful exhaustion because I, I work so hard to build those relationships. But these are real folks who have real issues. They're no different. They just have an additional label. Um, so for us, we did, um, we gave out meals, we partnered with local uh, restaurants to just make sure folks had a hot plate of food. We also delivered um, health, aware, uh, health and wellness um, bags to a handful of artists who just needed toiletries, needed a gas card. I mean, just literally prioritizing self-care for the last two years. And what that has done beautifully is that I can pick up the phone and if I have a gig for someone, they will not let the phone ring more than once <laughs> because they know that the opportunity, like, oh, cat's calling, okay, must be good. And I mean, that's just genuine, it's just genuine love because we intentionally, I intentionally care about the, the self, the, the well being of, of the folks that we support, um, both artists, staff, you name it. Um, but those are some of the things that have just, you know, come out of this pandemic and will continue. And if anything is just for me personally, centering humility and all that I do, you have to meet people where they're at. You can't assume anymore. Just can't.
think that it's, it's very, hold on a second. Wait a second. I want you to hear me nice and clear. Um, I think that it, it, the thing that is incredible to me is that you're trying to do this work in a city that has not always been um, open or welcoming to artists as, a, as I think artists as a whole outside of specific spaces and genres and particularly black artists, what have, what have been some of the difficulties that you have faced in the creation of, of BAMS Fest as an organization and then also the execution of BAMS Fest as an as a actual event itself? Those are, that's a really good question, Greg. <laughs> um, I've been known to ask a few. I know, I know. I think like anything, um, when you are a visionary, only you see it. So the hard part is telling a few to get to many. And I recognize you have to tell your story a million times in like a lot of different ways, lenses, different textures, settings. And I realized that early on, so I just kept telling my story, but it was hard getting that off the ground because it's like, like, uh, what do you mean? That's so far away. I'm like, it's really actually not, but recognizing that everyday people really only look past maybe six months. They're not looking three, four five years into the future like that. And then to try to paint this picture of this is going to be the biggest festival produced by a person of color. That was even like a second, you know, rejection of that's been done before. You can't do it. You know, go talk to the gatekeepers over here. You know, and even when I did, they were dismissive and I'm like, okay, so I'm really out here by myself. Got it. All right. So for me, it's, it was telling my story. It was trying to get those first set of believers off the ground besides those four artists, um, going to other people's events. Um, even being from here, it's still hard, <laughs> you know, really having to prove the case. And so um, I had to go through a lot of that. I had to um, deal with the challenges of this, this organization um, being just in a nonprofit structure. You know, when you're for, so for those who don't understand is that most festivals to the way in which we're trying to envision this festival program would be a for-profit so you're able to charge tickets and things of that nature. I've never, I've always been an outlier in my life. So <laughs> I'm always trying to um, show that it can be done a different way. Um, and that there are organizations that have um, festivals that are in a nonprofit structure. Um, but everyone just kept telling me over and over again, no, you gotta do this, you gotta do this. I'm like, I'm just gonna do it my way. And if you like it, great. If you don't, fine, I will find my tribe in this. Um, and of course, just getting funding, you know, um, I guess if I were to tell little, if I were to tell Catherine then what I know now, I probably would have stuck with a fiscal sponsorship, but I recognize that um, there are inherent challenges when you are looking for a fiscal sponsor, even more now, um, percentage fees, um, communication, brand, infrastructure, those kind of things. And I already knew what I wanted to see and have happen. So I worked very quickly to get and receive my designated 501c3. Um, but getting out, getting off the ground, talking to other people, like that's a lot of paperwork, you know, looking at lawyers, talking to folks, and then just trying to get funding 
for something that hasn't happened yet were <laughs> some of the biggest challenges. Um, and I think the other thing that, that most EDs or visionaries don't really talk about is the personal sacrifice of time. There's a lot of things I missed in my life for this organization, um, for this festival. There's a lot of things that, you know, I just can't get time back. So that's something that often isn't talked about, but it is one of the biggest burdens when you are starting something on your own. Um, and then the festival itself, I think it there's all kinds of challenges. One, we're housed in the biggest green space um, where most cultural events are pigeonholed into one area and I want the whole park. <laughs> so um, I want all 300 acres that are usable to the public. And so we're gonna start with this 18 and a half that we have right now. Um, but the, the challenges of being told that this festival could never make it. Like, why, why would you wanna do it at Franklin Park? Um, it should, it should go down to city hall and just stay there. Um, there's no way you can pull this off. I mean, just, just excuse after excuse after excuse. Um, that it, again, just trying to convince people of something they haven't seen yet. Um, I was already aware of the folks before me. I had talked to them, some were supportive, most were not, but I already knew that the, the bones were there. I just had to build the house differently. I had to build the foundation differently and be very thoughtful and intentional that it's more than just a festival. This is, this is really displaying what a solid arts and culture ecosystem led by black and brown people could look like, not just front of house, but also back of house. And that just takes time to build. Um, and then again, just continuing to grow the dollars to support this festival, it's free. It's the hardest, that's the hardest thing to keep up with something free. It's easier to charge, but then you have a specific audience that shows, so it's not really accessible. So that, that's where I'm at. Those are some of the challenges. There's so much there, Catherine. Um, and one of the key things that stuck out from what you just shared is, you know, the importance of equity and ownership, you know, so looking to build something from the ground up as a visionary in a space that is, you know, regulated as nonprofits have, you know, there are certain rules and things that they systems that they need to abide by, while also intersecting with, you know, municipal and city and state government, and then also looking to see how we can get the investment needed on a city and state and on a municipal level to really make sure that folks have places to go in those communities that mm -hmm. artists and creative entrepreneurs can stay, <laughs> you know, in, in greater Boston and have access to the opportunity. You know, uh, in some of our past conversations with guests, Greg and I have heard a lot about how Boston as a transplant city often is really great for people to come, you know, level up and then they bounce out. And I'm curious how that impacts the talent pool and impacts, you know, how you're also investing in local artists where there is this perception that there, that Boston isn't necessarily a place where if you're looking to have a creative career, you can really make it. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. We do have we do have a brain drain. We do we are losing talent, but I think we're we're losing the talent that has hit a glass ceiling or a, or a glass cliff. I really think that those who have exhausted every possibility to be successful here should move on. You know, sad to see you go, but Boston's a small town. Like you have to make room for the next generation. You can't just stay here and take all the limelight, like you have to, you have to move over. 
Um, but it is it is challenging, you know, to know that some of the artists that we we love and have supported have just decided, you know what? I've given Boston years to to figure itself out. I've done my part, but nothing's happening. And for me at this point, I'm on a, a pathway of discovery of connecting with schools, um, community centers, kind of going back to the essence of Boston, in my humble opinion, um, connecting with schools and community centers, um, getting more referrals from different artists, different types of artists, and now even expanding across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts right now to source new talent. Uh, performing, recording, visual, small business, graphic design, photography, cinematography, the whole nine yards. Oh, okay. Um, so the, the brain drain, while it is real, um, we just have to dig deeper as an organization and also the entire sector right now to find essentially an underground audience that is there. They just never been sourced. They've never been asked to, to be a part of anything. They just have their own thing to do. Now's the time to reach to them in my humble opinion. Um, but that's how we've been, that, I mean, I think that's just a natural thing for any city at this moment mm -hmm. is that there is going to be a moment in time where um, people stay or they go and mm -hmm. Boston's in a critical moment where resident, or I should say, uh, folks who are born and raised here are being quickly replaced, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and so the the criteria or the, the qualifications for this talent pipeline of artists looks a lot different than when it was four or five years ago. Uh, folks are coming from all over the world and so, the, even their expectations are higher, you know, um, and demands are higher. But I'm always very um, quick to remind people that um, the one thing about Boston, you can't come out swinging with a big idea. You have to get validated. You have to build with the people in the community um, or else they won't show at all. So I, it's interesting, as I listen to you talk about that, that landscape, I wonder, what, in your opinion, what is it that we can do to get um, to get some of that, not necessarily just the talent, but the, to get some of that energy to stay, all of those people? Because I look at, you know, a city like Nashville, Nashville really leaned into the whole idea of being a music city. Mm -hmm. And when you go there, the National Museum of African American Music is there. Yeah. It's an incredible, incredible facility. And then, you know, it's what are the some of the things that you think, you know, some ideas that you think Boston could enact to be more friendly to to arts and culture and to entertainment as a whole? Because like I said, when I look at Nashville, like they open their bars at 10 a.m. Mm -hmm. and they close them at 4 a.m. Mm -hmm. um, Lovely. <laughs> when I was, when I went there and visited recently and I was amazed, like mm -hmm. literally there was a, like, and, and it's funny because when I, when I hear about our past here in Boston, you know, areas like the South End, areas like Blue Hill Ave, what I hear described in those eras 
is what I saw in is what I exactly. saw in Nashville. I saw, you know, if you even if you don't have a record contract in Nashville, you can be a working artist and yes, and be just fine. You can play in recording sessions. You can play um, live music in in bars. You can play in all those different places. You can tour with bands. Between all of those together, you can cobble together a life. Mm-hmm. So what is it that we can do um, here in Boston to kind of get ourselves into being a more friendly place so that we're not necessarily losing that, um, losing that talent? Well, it's interesting that the word friendly, um, <laughs> operative word. I think that um, one is the laws, quite honestly. There are a lot of laws right now that make it hard to even get a permit, a liquor license, acquisition of city space, right? Like um, access to capital to purchase cultural space. And I'm not talking about like the size of a closet or a, a dive or a diner. I'm talking about like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of square feet. <laughs> that Like that kind of dwelling does not exist to house many, much of that talent. I mean, could you imagine if Boston had four Black-owned House of Blues our way across the city? We could retain our talent, but that level of um, investment, curiosity, and commitment to building those epicenters are not, they're not urgent. They're just not urgent. We have a lot of old buildings that need a lot of fixing, or you have to build it. And unless you have the capital or you have those kind of investors, and if the city's willing to give the, the same kind of breaks it gives everybody else, now we're all being pushed out to Rhode Island and gateway cities like Brockton and New Bedford that are working to build the infrastructure to receive all of that, while Boston may have a, a, a lot of hay bales rolling down the street because there's no epicenters for culture to exist. So, you know, the laws that are on the books right now, just even um, have an event makes it hard to retain talent. If an art, if a community person like myself can't put on, you know, if I have to struggle, like deeply struggle to put on a one day event and there's someone similar who doesn't look like me, who's white, is able to put on three, four, five weekends worth of events. What is the problem here? There's, there's some laws and there's some unspoken laws or rules that, that unfortunately are being enforced that make it hard to even just get access to spaces. I think with the boom of people uh, purchasing homes is amazing, but you can build all the homes. If you don't have the, the, the spaces for folks to um, consider a, an extension of their home, they're just in their home. There's no community there. So it's like for every real estate developer, black, white, Puerto Rican, Haitian that is, is in the business of building generational wealth, consider cultural space to be part of your portfolio. It has to be, or else we, don't ha- we won't have anything left. And then you can't be mad if your favorite artist that you love is going to New Hampshire or Rhode Island is totally missing the Boston market because they don't see us here. And there's no one really raising their hand saying, these are where all the black folks are at. No one's really doing that. Um, I think the other thing for, for me is, is that 
outside of cultural spaces, we need more restaurant owners. We don't, we don't mm-hmm. have, we don't have, it's a short few. Yeah. When I think about DC and Philly, Nashville, I love Nashville. When I think about Miami, I mean, it, it's going to take 50 of my bodies to count how many businesses I can think of. But I, I, the fact that I can count all of them, I mean, and I mean like full, full stop restaurants that have their liquor license that are partly entertainment and service food, full service. We don't have that. And so what that affects is when visitors are coming to town and specifically ask, where can I go to support a black owned business, a black owned restaurant? That person, whoever tells them where to go, doesn't know. So guess what? That money does not come up town into our communities at all. We have to be more present, but again, access to capital, the laws that are in place, the things that are preventing us from owning (laughs) makes it inherently challenging. And I think the other thing is that we do not have a central system or a central place that's like the nucleus for marketing all events not just the few that represent the good almighty state of Massachusetts. Um, there's very few, and, we, and oftentimes we have to fight to be present on those, those marketing sites. But it is very crucial, and it's one of the most asked questions is, you know, where do I go to learn about all the events that look like me, and there's not really a central place? If we had that, I think there, there would be less complaint that there is not anything there is it's just not um it's in clusters now it's not it's not you're not going to find it in all one neighborhood just because you know dorchester as i've grown up to as i have learned it to be is truly a, a caribbean community i'm gonna find all my caribbean people in dorchester you know but i'm also gonna find my my cape Verdean people out in brockton <laughs> So there's just two different cultures happening. They're my people. I just got to travel because where they've decided to move is a place that that is offering or that has allowed them to build their culture and community. I don't know if uh, that one central place would get rid of the complaint. I think that's a, <laughs> a distinctly Boston trait. We enjoy complaining. So I don't know if that's going to fully get rid of it, but I, I feel where you're going. <laughs> At least right. something, right? And then you can work backwards from there. Exactly. Reggie. Um, and, you know, you touched a little bit on some of these gateway cities like Brockton, New Bedford, others like, you know, Chelsea or Lawrence. I'm curious to get a sense of what your work as a philanthropic intermediary looks like around the state as you're looking to support creative placemaking and placekeeping. You know, Massachusetts is a fairly white state. And when we do cluster as people of color in certain communities, we like to, as you said, find our tribe and we like to make homes out of our tribes. But how do we also make the investments possible working with government, working with philanthropy so that folks if folks really build the trust that the investment is geared for them in mind, not necessarily for someone who can come up behind them and benefit from it. I think what I've learned um, in being in philanthropy to date is one, the, the identity and narrative of arts and culture has to shift first. And, and, and I, I credit this to Greg. Greg has drilled this into me. I did listen, I promise, Greg. Um, is that uh, the way in which arts and culture has been conveyed 
throughout the years, I mean, many, many years, is that it's all about access. Yes, that's one point. I agree. However, it's an economic driver for the entire Commonwealth. It's one of top, one of the top three economic drivers for the state, and yet is not supported as much as education and construction. That blows my mind, <laughs> to, to say the least. And so what I, what I have um, been doing uh, in working at the Boston Foundation is going on a listening tour to really understand how are people perceiving arts and culture at this moment. And what I have found is the people who are talking the loudest are not people of color. It's first white cis men followed by white women. Yeah. And then people of color are brought in after decisions are made. So there's a responsibility that I feel that organizations of color and arts and culture, artists, creative workers, there's more of them than the handful of state reps and city councilors advocating for arts and culture. They should be, in my humble opinion, making the most noise. But I recognize that even their own perception of arts and culture is complicated because of how they've been treated, how they've been devalued, where they end up being placed in terms of institutions that will favor artists of color over the next. And so my hope through my work is to start there about changing stories and narratives and identity. We have to get it right before we can ask for bigger things and have a more united message first. And for artists and, and art service organizations that understand that they do play a vital role in being loud, they have to be. There's, there's over 100,000 cultural workers across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and you mean to tell me there's only really 12 people advocating for arts and culture? The math doesn't add up right correctly for me. I wonder what that number would be if like you said something about the whole idea of the the support for the construction world and 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 the other areas i wonder what that number would be if it was properly applied to the world of arts and culture and to and you know if they're if they're getting the most support what would be the proper number like so for example if it's you know a 10 million dollar ask i'm just making up a number if it's 10 million dollars should it actually be a hundred million? <laughs> you know what I mean? Is, is it kind can, of that kind of? I can give you your number because this is a question that was asked of me as a base. If there are just arbitrary, if there are two hundred and thirty-five towns in the state of Massachusetts, then every town should get a million dollars to start. Now, how you want to equitably place that? Some neighborhoods are going to need more than others, but as a base, give every town a million dollars. Some actually don't need all that much because they don't want that much foot traffic in their community. They just want, want enough so that the radius of their population has access. But I would start with 235 mil. We can never seem to get there though. <laughs> and then we can start to work through um, the gateway cities. We can start to look at ownership of space. But right now we can't even get solid, like solidly, we cannot even get to a three-digit number. We're always under that, which makes no sense to me that a state budget approving $136 million of that, really the state only gets 60 mil. I have a problem with that. That's 60 mil to divide amongst 
all these towns, the mm-hmm. math like someone's not getting a job. Someone's not. not someone's math, not. Math isn't mathing. Yeah, the math. The math isn't mathing. I I wonder if. Hmm. I mean, and you and, and you're actually the perfect person to ask. So. You know, one of the things that, that's been beautiful to see over the past couple of years, particularly in Boston, is we've seen, you know, um, with Mayor Janey and now Mayor Wu, you have people who are in, in spaces of in positions who are a little bit more um, willing to listen. You have a, a city council that it, that kind of is a little bit more reflective of the city. Um, and... In addition to that, beyond that, even spaces like the the Boston Foundation with with Dr. Pelton moving into place and, and, you know, the Himes Foundation with Lisa Owens over there, like now you're starting to see all these people who I guess, I guess maybe get it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems to me that it, it almost feels like it needs to be a coalition between the private sector, uh, philanthropy and, and, um, in our public officials, like, where do you, where are we, where in your estimation, where are we at in kind of developing that, um, that concerted effort between all those different parties? Because I, you know, we have this conversation um, many times about how the, you like, like you said, I talk about the economics of it, you know, how do we get the, how do we get all those people? How do we get the potential venue owners? How do we get the potential arts organizations? How do we get the the public officials all to the table to start pushing forward this agenda beyond just the arts and culture organizations? Because if people don't hear about the money, I think sometimes they they don't necessarily take it as seriously, unfortunately. Oh, I, I know they don't. That That's that's the, the narrative shifting that has to happen. I think that we are very, very early in those kind of collaborations and partnerships. One, you got to understand who, who needs to be in the room, who's not being included in the room is always a question. Um, you know, I've, in my experience in living in Philadelphia, going to Temple University and watching, being in the mayor's office at the time and watching how easy it was. I'm not saying it was, wasn't complex, but it was easy to see how invested the governor was, the um, National Parks Association was involved, <laughs> the um, uh, live entertainment industry, food and beverage, the, the, the film office, those are the kind of folks that had to build within themselves before they even, you know, did anything else. And then they, then when they got what they needed to define and, and, you know, say, you know, we're going to pull all of these resources that's going to yield X and Y dollars for the state that will be then dispersed to all these different communities. Then that led to national asks, both for public and private sector. We have all these different um, industries that have not talked to each other at all. Like just within tourism, hospitality, live live uh, entertainment, film, um, uh, city government, um, the food and beverage industry. Those industries co-depend on each other, but oftentimes they're segregated. <laughs> And so it's like those have those minds have to meet first before we can even get to, you know, state government or even uh, public or, or private dollars. They have to recognize um, not only just their own power, but the resources that they hold and the relationships that they hold 
to then go deeper about uh, what other coalitions that can happen. But because those industries just don't talk to each other, one's making more money than the other, one's pissed off over here, like it's exhausting. And the crazy part about it, those that are making those decisions tend to be white men. <laughs> making those decisions for a sector, in my opinion, that is largely driven by people of color. But there's not, the sad part that I would love to be able to get to is that we don't have data that tracks or shows the racial makeup of those in the arts and culture ecosystem. It's blanketed as artist or a self-employed person. But if you were to break it down by wage and racial makeup, get a very interesting story. Now, I only get a lot from anecdotes and, and the experiences I have through the fest, through the organization, but oftentimes it's the same story, underpaid, devalued, didn't, they didn't market me right. They, they, they took two years, like just all this stuff, but it tends to be people of color that I run into and not just African-American, not just Caribbean, my Latin folk, my Latinx folks, uh, my, my disability community. I'm like, but that data doesn't even exist. It doesn't exist. So that part of people taking us seriously there's no data, so we're lost in the numbers, unfortunately. Yeah, I have so many thoughts here, um, <laughs> and I appreciate you both for, for bringing, this, bringing us to this point in the conversation, because, you know, when we think about public dollars, you know, our state budget and how mm -hmm. we get to those types of investments, how we can get to the $235 million for arts and culture in the Commonwealth yeah. that, you, that you named, Catherine, you know, often from a legislative process, the way that you get to that money is by is by, you know, someone proposes a commission, the commission goes out and does a feasibility study, they do, they get the results of this study back, and then you find the pathways to getting to the dollars needed, because you have the data to support that, as you said, you know, for us to not be tracking and have a sense of what these things look like on a, on a disaggregated basis, like, where are we making these investments? And how are these investments faring over time? It is often tied, also, as you said, to leadership, <laughs> who is in those positions of power and what their interest is in terms of making that that level of access a priority of their you know legislative agenda. I've been really glad to see folks like uh, State Representative Liz Miranda and others proposing arts and cultural amendments to ensure that we're using public dollars to support our local arts and culture and creative entrepreneurship ecosystem, but more is required. And it also just can't be in, in greater Boston. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. how are we doing the same level of investment in Springfield, in Worcester, in New Bedford, in Brockton? And we have to be able to, to live and work there and we have to want to be there because if it's not feeling like home for us, you know, it's often deuces, time to go. Yeah. <laughs> we gotta find something else to be. But thank, I just had to say that. Thank you all for bringing that up. Oh no, for sure. And and the reality is that um, you know, I think the that artists particularly have to think beyond just being an artist. They're citizens first. They're voting citizens, and they have to exercise that power. And because they have a fan base, which elected officials need, they even have more power, right? You know, all it takes is one person to give a bad report. That's 10% of your audience gone. So it's like, 
artists themselves, I think, have never really fully understood their own influence beyond writing the music or creating the art. But it's like, if you have a fan base, that's a platform, right? And you can yeah. speak on some issues that matter. But we, you know, for me in, in, in philanthropy, data, the, the lack of data collection is the issue because it's hard to convey even beyond the stories if I can't support it with percentages or, or at least something to say, this is why we need to spend or have $235 million for arts and culture. We do a lot of things around um, what we've lost economically, but I'm, I would love to see the racial or demographical information show up because it, it may even for me confirm what I've always believed, but there's just numbers now to work with that then can lead to these different pathways of, of true equity, um, urgency, and authenticity. Mm. Yeah, I'm gonna have to introduce you to our um, director of engaged research over at King Boston, Dr. Uh, Dr. Ennis, because I think uh, she might have a little bit, of, not necessarily the information, but the, the, the framework to create that information that you're talking about, because it seems like that is essential to us moving this conversation beyond, beyond an anecdotal. And I think yeah. that once people see the numbers, um, and then I, like I said, we keep using, I keep going back to Nashville because I was just so impressed. <laughs> um, and first of all, I've never seen so many happy people as yes. I've seen in the streets of Nashville, just yes. all the time. And wow. you know, I know that Nashville is not necessarily all good all everywhere, but in those places I was, I've never seen so many happy, and, and possibly inebriated folks. As well, again, laws, right? Like, let's be real about laws here. Mm -hmm. uh, what's allowed, what's not allowed, so. But I mean, listen, that is one of the reasons why we're seeing this great exodus of people going to the South. You know, well, Boston, but Boston takes the F you out of fun, right? Like we have lost the essence of trying to be soulful like straight oh, Lord. up <laughs> Lord. you see what your friends you see you see how your friend talks about me you see, it takes the f you out of fun boston that might be listen she's not wrong but that's that not, might that's also, not the title <laughs> i would say that might be the title dj teddy ted you might have to listen to, that might but be I the mean, title the, the thing that you're describing earlier like there mm -hmm. was a there was a decade of boston that was that and it's just completely changed. I think the real estate boom for, for as good as it is has also changed the way in which we experience fun in each other. Every time you see a new building, you're like, you're hoping it's something, you know, amazing or cultural. It's like, oh, it's another house. Oh, it's another hospital. Oh, it's like, come on, there's gotta be something. There's gotta be like a Marvin's in, in DC or it's gotta be like, you know, um, I don't know, something else. But I'll just, take a Natalie's from New York undercover at this point. <laughs> you know, like there's just, there's not that level of excitement or even um, urgency to wander into neighborhoods and communities because that infrastructure is just not there. And it just would make, it would make the world of difference uh, if those opportunities were there. But Boston, like in terms of culture in the air, if people are not paying attention, I always describe Boston now as like a set of grandparents. 
We close down at 11. Sometimes the grandparents allow us to play till like one o'clock. But other than that, you go on to bed, period. Does not allow you to go past four. The day we go past four o'clock, I would love it, but we're not going to do that. Because because I'm not trying to be out until four. But. Well, the point is Boston wants to retain itself to be a certain kind of culture and behavior. And that's why people are leaving because it's boring. There's no risk. Well, people Lucy, you know, it's also interesting. I was going like, to say, meanwhile, our, our, our cousins down in Providence are having the time of their lives till three o'clock in the morning and all types. Every, I, I always say that Providence is what Boston thinks it is. Exactly. That's why, that's why we get skipped all the time because of that, that the rules are bending. They're not broken, but they're bending. They're stretching so it can accommodate the needs of people moving in who are coming from other places saying, hey, I'm from Nashville. How come you all, it's taking you all 10 years to do this? Like, we're just way too old we're, and we're so Puritan. And the problem is it doesn't reflect the Boston that's trying to become truly a minority majority city. Because when you do that, that means you have to consider a lot of cultural and social things that go against the DNA of Boston. Yeah, I think this is also why, sorry, go ahead, Kat. No, I was gonna say Boston is a city, Boston and Massachusetts, like this country is made up of immigrants. That means there's so many different people coming in with needs that you actually have to accommodate as best as you can. You can't just say, deal with it. it doesn't work this is also why it's important for folks to engage with their elected officials you know with the pandemic all of a sudden uh in-person meetings went remote for the first time in our state's history you know allowing participation from all over the state some restaurants were able to do takeaway or carry out alcoholic beverages, which they hadn't been allowed to in the past, I think, since the, the laws had changed around how we were doing beverage dispensation. We can do what we want to do when we are prioritizing doing that because it's keeping businesses afloat, but not to create a thriving culture, which will then attract people to these businesses. And it's about interests, who has access to the power. And if we continue to put the pressure on in a way that makes our voices heard, Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that more folks will be able to see us as, you know, Providence adjacent in a good way. <laughs> you know, maybe a nice. little less corruption. <laughs> it would be nice for sure. I think it's, um, we need new energy. And I mean that from a multi-generational perspective, we do. Well, part of that new energy is, is popping up in the park uh, yeah. this summer. <laughs> Can you yes, tell us a little bit about what's happening? Dance Fest 2022? Oh, Absolutely. Man. After two years of being on hiatus, the, the phoenix rises from the ashes. Um, June 11th, officially, we will kick off the summer with uh, the third annual Boston Art Music Soul Festival. This year's theme is Epic Joy, Bam's Joy, however you want to claim it. Um, we are occupying 18 and a half acres of outdoor green space adjacent to, you know, one of my inspirations, mentors, uh, Elma Lewis, who started Playoffs in the Park. Um, we're excited because we're, we're back. We are bigger than ever. We have an amazing lineup. We, we pretty much tripled our efforts. We went from 
one headliner to four, you know, because why not? Um, and, and we are supporting 15 amazing uh, emerging artists uh, coming, uh, not just from within Boston, but also across the country. Um, despite the pandemic, we normally get about 5,000 applications. This year, we received 1,000, which I was even more shocked because so many, we lost so many people. Mm -hmm. And um, when I tell you this is one of the most eclectic lineups, I mean that from a genre perspective, a creativity perspective, a diversity perspective, but also just the fact that um, they are so excited to, to come home, if you will, and, and show Boston what they got. So it's from noon to eight at Playstead Fields, one Pierpont Road. Um, free and open to the public, bring a chair, a blanket, some grass, a little cooler, some suntan lotion if you want, um, whatever you need to, to create sustenance for yourself and just be there all day. Um, we have two stages, 19 uh, musical acts, which I'm so excited for. <laughs> we have a visual art component called Rep Your City with about um, eight visual artists. Uh, curating a live art exhibition. They have to complete their piece uh, before the festival ends that night. So no pressure to all the artists. We have, we're bringing back Beat Feet Dance, um, which basically is um, an opportunity for black choreographers to teach their traditional um, Afro-diasporic uh, style, uh, style of dance. So we have been able to partner with um, five choreographers this year. We have uh, Shawamba Dabinga from Origination, uh, Ellie Pablon from uh, Meta Movements, Stiggity Stacks, um, who I'm so excited to have, uh, Jean Apollon, who's teaching Haitian folkloric dance. And then we added um, a trike called Funk with the Floor Lords and the Beantown Lockers this year. So nice. very, very excited. It's, it's multifaceted, multidimensional, um, multi-genre. Uh, well, we have also partnered with Black Owned Boston to curate our vendor village. Um, so they have selected some amazing Black owned businesses to be a part of this festival this year. And of course you can't have all that without Soul Food Row featuring uh, Black and Brown uh, food entrepreneurs and trucks for the festival, so. Yeah, and, and I'm sure if, if folks don't already know, please visit our website, dancefest.org. Um, this year's headliner uh, lineup will include Black Alley Band from DC bringing go-go music. We have Chelsea Green bringing, uh, we'll say classical fusion, if you will. Um, we have D Smoke representing hip hop out of California, but who actually started out as a bilingual um, high school instructor. And then closing it out will be uh, Sisters with Voices, better known as SWV, closing out the night. So we know, we are expecting the community to come out, have fun, support each other, and show what we've always known Boston to, to be, which is um, itself, that, that folks live here and want more of this programming to happen. So please come out June 11th, Saturday, rain or shine, um, and bring the whole family. Can't be more next, next time you gotta up. lead you gotta lead with swv you try to ease all into them Absolutely. The you had to start off there there's no disrespect to the other people who nope. you just, 
you gotta, mm-hmm. you know, you gotta give us the headline. No, but I think gotta, the, I think the beautiful okay. part about this 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 uh, this uh, lineup is that it, it it is is it is it is eclectic, as you said, and Hell I think eclectic. that it's definitely going to um, get some positive energy out into the into the park. So okay. I can't wait after to Kindred see. the Family Soul, Eric Roberson, now SWV, and all of these other great acts. Four headliners. Y'all better not miss it. And that was Saturday, June 11th at Place Dead yes. Park, right? From 12 to 8 p.m.? Yes. All, right, All day, free and open. Yep. So it's going to be a stone groove. We're going we gonna to have to be there, man. Can't Ooh. wait. Well, I think that's all the time we have. I might need to take a nap to get ready for the festival. <laughs> Catherine, thank you so much for a spirited conversation, for sharing your light with us and with our entire community here across Greater Boston. We appreciate you. Yes. We see you. We're so excited for this year's in-person festival after two two years of the pandemic. Excited to be back out in person and connect with one another. Thank you all for having me. Love it. Listen, we're so happy to have you. Before we get out of here, please let people know where they can follow BAMS Fest, where they can follow you and kind of all the work that you're doing. Yes, you can follow us across all social media at BAMS Fest. That is B A. M as in Mary, S as in Sam, F-E-S-T. Um, please visit our website, bamsfest.org. Um, while this event is free and open to the public, it is a cost to us. So in order for it to remain free, we ask everyone to invest their dollars. It is important. People give up a lot of hours of their entire year to make sure this festival uh, happens for the community. So. We cannot do that without your full support and investment in its future. So please visit bandsfest.org um, and click on donate and learn more about our organization and this year's lineup and festival activities. Absolutely. I think I think all our troublemakers out there will will follow along and and see what you're doing and, and get on board. You know, you know what, Reggie? That's there it is. That's our name for the folks, our listeners out there, the troublemakers. You know, Amen. I like it. I like it. I like it. Because Catherine is a troublemaker. She uh-huh. did. Yes, Off she the is. record, definitely not. <laughs> absolutely is. Absolutely is. You're, you're challenging. You're challenging things that need to be challenged. You are a change maker and a troublemaker. You have to wear this mantle, much like this afro. It is a crown that oh, lets the world so know not, you have arrived. So it's not a T for terrific. It's a T for troublemaker. That's what... <laughs> I think that's what I heard. I Catherine, really like Troublemaker Ivy Morris. There it is. Yes. <laughs> you messed up, man. Thank you, Reggie. No, I will Catherine not subscribe to T. that. T. Morris in the uh-uh. Troublemaker. Nope, not doing it. Mm-mm. <laughs> Listen. So if you, you listen, you know that's your fa- that's your favorite name. You're gonna be called. Gonna, I'm gonna get you a jacket and everything. Ah, uh, don't do that. Save your money. No. I'm gonna get you a hat that says Troublemaker Mm-mm. Emo. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Timo. She got man. We got so many nicknames for uh. Listen, everyone. I appreciate all of you all for tuning in with us here at Good Trouble and uh, Catherine coming in and just enjoying. Uh, enjoying our time with you today and having the opportunity to just share some laughter and get some good information. We appreciate you, Catherine. And uh, if you're listening to us, please share, uh, share the good word with a friend. You know, Catherine gave us so much knowledge. We shouldn't be keeping it to ourselves. We should be passing it on. That's what troublemakers do. 
And Timo, we got to spread the word so that people oh. know that Timo is in these streets. She's out here getting things done. So listen, uh, <laughs> Catherine, you're like, why did I come on this show? Yeah, yeah, this. I got questions. It's all right, though. <laughs> yeah, we we love you, Catherine. We're so happy you were we able to join, join us. And uh, listen, and we are going to have you back because I think that, you know, you you put the seed in, in, in folks' minds about some of the things that need to get done in this in this city, in this region. And I think that's something we definitely want to explore in the future. So thank you so much. You got it. Thank you all. All right. DJ Teddy Ted, take us out. Until the next time, folks, we will see you. This is the Good Trouble Podcast. My name is Gregory Ball, and he is... Reginald Williams. Yes, and we'll see you again next time. <laughs> <laughs>